Well, too much time or too little time, each can bring serious problems in our life, can they not? Too little time on our hands and we miss the details of life. We go too quick, too frantic. We leave the house without even looking in the mirror before we leave. Some of you now are wondering if I'm talking about you. I'm not. What about when we have too much time on our hands? Hobbies and hobbyists become our heroes. Sloth can so easily creep into our lives. And rather than having too little time and simply not looking at a mirror, with too much time on our hands, we can look too deeply at ourselves in the mirror, looking and examining every single pore and being lost in the details, easily becoming self-centered and glossing over all the rest of life that takes place. On a passage that Pastor Stephen read for us this morning, we see that Moses very wisely gains an accurate understanding of himself. Just last week, we read the charge that God gave to Moses. You see, he is a faithful God, all present and all knowing. He knows about the groaning of Israel. And as we left off last week, Moses then is given the charge, the commission, the command to go. And Moses, at the very beginning of our verses this morning, he's aware of his inadequacies. He has an accurate view of himself. The task that God has called him to is far too great for him to actually be successful in accomplishing. And yet, sadly, we'll see that he has too long of a look. He takes too long of a look upon himself and therein fails to trust God in his word. But in this passage, we see that God is faithful and patient as he gives Moses reason and reason again why he should trust God's word. And so this morning, we ask the Spirit, God, give us insights, give us understanding, give us appropriate applications that we would become aware of ourselves. Self-awareness is not a bad thing, but that we would not become so consumed and aware of ourselves that we neglect the Word of God and therein slip into disobedience in our daily lives for which He commands us. So let's begin as we look first at this way that we've phrased it is simply, who am I? It's what Moses says in verse 11, but God said to Moses, who am I? That's simply how we phrased it. When who am I versus the I am who I am? Who am I? Moses has an accurate view of himself. He takes a look at himself and he concludes that he's not qualified for the task at hand. He's not qualified to go back into Egypt and to lead a people that have already rejected him and, and lead them from a people that by default have rejected him, seeking to take his life. He's not qualified for the task that God has called him to. He's actually correct. He's not qualified to do what he's called to do. He has an accurate view of himself, so accurate indeed that we see first and foremost that he was rejected as a deliverer by his Hebrew people. And so if we were to ask in this first part, in looking at verse 11, Moses, can you give us a resume? You're submitting to be a deliverer for Israel. Can we see a resume, please? First and foremost on the resume would be that he's already been rejected by the people that he's going to apply to go in to deliver. That's not looking good so far, is it? It says, but Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He has an accurate view of himself. Back in chapter 2, verse 14, we saw the situation for which he left in the, in the sermon that, that the deacon Stephen gave in Acts chapter 7. He tells us in verse 25 and verse 35 that he prepared himself to deliver his people, the Hebrew people. And yet they rejected him. 
Deacon, uh, the Deacon Stephen summarizes for us. That's what's on his resume. He's already failed at the task now that God has called him to undertake. Moses takes a look at himself and concludes personally, God, who am I? He's accurate. What do you see when you look at yourself? Now, don't be nervous. This is not some self-help sermon. This is not going to be some application that says you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That's not the goal here. But Moses does have an accurate, honest reality of his past. He has already set his task and his goal to lead these people, his own people, from the land of Egypt, and yet he has failed. He's been rejected by them. Not only that, but secondly, we note that he was rejected as a prince by his adoptive Egyptian family. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God, if you're choosing people, if you're choosing someone to go and to lead your people, why me? Not only am I inadequate, for I've already failed to lead the people out. I heard their groaning. I was burdened as your burden. You said you've heard their groaning. And so you're commissioning me, but I've already failed to lead them out. And the people you're calling me to lead them out from have put a, a death hit on my life. I mean, that's a pretty big rejection. Why would you choose me when I am this inadequate? So remember, in the context of the scene, Moses is there at the bush that is burning but is not consumed. His sandals have been taken off. He becomes aware as he's reminded of the covenant faithful God, as the text says again and again and again. We'll see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for it's through the covenant by which these people have relationship with him. And so he's fearful and he looks away and he hears the charge that God gives and he says, who am I? Who am I? I'm truly not qualified for the task you've set before me. And he's not wrong in this. Our standards often fail to measure up to God's standards, don't they? Matter of fact, all come short of the glory of God. But when it comes to resume selection, God's people have a tragic track record. A few years later than this, a few hundred years, I should say, we'll have David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it's kind of an amusing account. You can write down the reference and read it in more detail. You'll do better than I can summarizing it. I'll do my best though. God gives this call to Samuel, the prophet, to go and to anoint this one that God has chosen. One of Jesse's sons, Jesse of Bethlehem. Saul has been disqualified before the Lord, and, and the Lord chooses one of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel, he has to navigate his way out to be able to make it there. And he comes to the room finally, makes his way to Bethlehem. And here in this room are Jesse's sons. He walks into the room and he makes assessments in his eyes with the spotlight coming down on one of the sons. He's persuaded and convinced of this grade A, fresh out of casting for a king of Israel son. This guy is handsome. He fits the part. It's Jesse's son, Eliab. Here he is. Clearly, this is the one that God must have anointed to be the king, set apart and blessed for the charge of leading God's people. What does God say? Do not look on his appearance or on the height or of his stature because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so he walks through the rest of the sons. I'm presuming either he worked himself left to right or right to left as a Hebrew. That's a language joke. Maybe he went to the next most appealing. Or maybe he listened to what the Lord said and began with the ugliest next son. We don't know what he worked himself to. But he works through all the sons and every one of them the Lord, nope, not that one. Not that one. And in this humorous scene, just imagine what Samuel had to say then as he went through all of Jesse's sons. Like, Jesse, like, is there another one? Are you, do you have more sons? And to which Jesse responds, well, yeah, I mean, I do, but he's the youngest one and he's out tending to the sheep, my son David. And of course, that's the one that the Lord will have anointed in front of all of his brothers to be the new king of Israel. Jesse's own father does not believe he's qualified to lead Israel. Several hundred years earlier, Moses does not believe he is qualified for the task at hand. We have a tendency to favor the ways of the world, to measure and cut the same way that the world does, but not our God. This we'll see unfold consistently through all the narratives of Scripture. And it's good to be aware of our shortcomings, but as we see with Moses, it's not Good to be too aware of our shortcomings, so much so that we obsess upon them. And I think we can all relate to doing that in different seasons, correct? Could be a past situation in our life or a past of sin by which we think, well, I'm disqualified from being and making disciples, or I need to just keep my mouth shut instead of abiding in the way and word of the Lord. And so he's aware, Moses is intimately aware of the reality that he has been rejected by the Hebrew people. He's been rejected by the Egyptian people. But also we've seen in verse 22 that he's a sojourner in a foreign land. Remember when he named his son back in verse 22, Gershom? And so names were often given to capture that season in history. And many other nations, many African nations do this same component of, of, of favoring and, and capturing the season of life that they're in. If not, also looking at the quality of the child. But David does the first. He qualifies his season of life. He names his son Gershom, which means I have been a sojourner, resident foreigner in a foreign land. David knows, or Moses knows, that he's a fish out of water. But he's so persuaded and beat down that he's a fish out of water that he doesn't believe, even if God says otherwise, that he should go back into the water. Well, think about that. Moses is at such a state of mind that he knows he is not where he is supposed to be. He's not with the people he knows he was called to be with and burdened to desire to deliver. But he's so beat down in his mind and understanding that he more believes he does not believe he's worthy to be back in the water even if the Lord calls and commissions him to. It's good to be aware of our shortcomings. But it's a dangerous thing how quickly they can become obsessions of our shortcomings. And so much so that he neglects the very word of God who has given him this charge. So Moses is aware that he is who he is. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and to lead forth your people? But fortunately, the, we're not just going to look at one verse today. 
Look at verse 12 as we continue on, and we're going to read chapter 4, verse 1, or we'll make comments on this. It's already read for us. We contrast the reality of the question of who am I with what the Lord says. It's who am I versus the I am who I am. Moses takes too long of a look at himself. He takes a look at himself and he gives these three accurate observations. But Moses takes too long of a look at himself and therein he struggles to trust God at His Word. We see four developments that take place here as we walk through these coming verses. We see first a development that God tells Moses that He will be with him. Moses says, I'm not qualified to go and do this. Who am I, Lord? And the Lord tells him that He's going to be with him. This is good news. This is development number one. How kind and compassionate and patient is our Lord. He says in verse 12, but I will be with you. The New American and New King James pick up a little bit more uh, certainly the clarity of the text by pulling out the certainty, but certainly I will be with you. Every testimony that we hear, whether it's young Jackson Wright's or Rob Berry's or Ryan Tompkins last month, you hear in everyone's testimony this plot twist in Ephesians 2, such a beautiful text, 1 through 10, that outlines this, our life before Christ and when we came to understand the gospel and be struck by grace and brought from death to life in our life since then. And the good works that the Lord's prepared for us to walk in faithfully as disciples. We see that plot twist, this but God moment, some have classically called. And that's what the Lord does here. He gives the but God Himself. You see, He doesn't argue. God doesn't correct Moses. When Moses says, who am I? God doesn't say, you're right, you're awesome. I mean... Do you remember how you were drawn out of the water and the reeds? That was awesome. You can do this. I mean, do you remember your education? You were trained up in the house of Pharaoh. I mean, you're so educated. And also, you've been training as a shepherd, literally leading Jethro's flock. You got this. That's not what the Lord says, is it? What does the Lord say? I will be with you. The Lord has given a commission and He's given a certainty of His presence in the commission. As believers, it's hard to think of that and not consider the great commission that the Lord has given His disciples in Matthew 28 that passes on as well to us. And He will be with us always until the end of the age. He's given us a commission to be and to make disciples. This is good news for us, but I will be with you. Flip over to Philippians chapter 4. We'll see a similar component that Paul strikes and understands God gave Paul as you remember a direct commission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles the non-Jewish people this commission as he goes out in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 through 13 it's a passage you're possibly familiar with Tim Tebow used it as his eye black and put writing on it back when he played pretty often our students at camp went over this Philippians chapter 3 and Philippians chapter 4 And what these chapters remind us of is that Paul learns that by the strength of the Lord, the Lord who is with him and will never leave him nor forsake him, that he can fulfill the charge that God has given him. Whether he has much or whether he has little, whether he has sickness or whether he has health, you can think of the classic marriage vows. He can do all these things through Christ who strengthens him. Fulfilling the call of making disciples of Jesus Christ. 
So let me read for it. Philippians 4, 11 through 13, as we consider again a further application of the fact that God tells Moses that he will be with him throughout all that is to come. Paul writes in Philippians to the church, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The all things that the Lord strengthens Paul in is all seasons. For the sake of what? Preaching Christ crucified is hope of glory. Being and making disciples. Isn't that I can do all things a much better application than hitting the knuckleball or getting an A? It's not some motivational statement. It's a reality of the presence of the Lord in the believer's life to fulfill the commission that the Lord has given him. That the Lord has not been faithless when we experience heartache or much, but a contentment to the call that God has given each of us to be and make disciples and to fulfill the commission before us. He's a faithful God. That's what he reminds Moses here at the very beginning. I will be with you. And so, believer, this morning, if you're discouraged, what should you do? You should rest in the promises and the presence of the Lord. Rest in the finished work of Christ. And put our hands to the plow and work out of the rest that we receive in the Lord. So, God tells Moses that he will be with them in verse 12, finishing that. Also, God tells Moses that they will be successful. Not only will the Lord be with him, but it's going to end in success. Sometimes the responsibilities of the prophet end when being taken off into captivity and preaching in vain for all of your life, but it achieves God's glory. But Moses' particular commission will end in success. He will lead the people out of Egypt. It's a guarantee that it's going to work out the way you hope it works out. Look what he says. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. God gives a promise to be with Moses, and the sign of the promise is that His presence will be back there on the mountain, and they will worship and serve the Lord there. That's how kind our God is. Did God have to give any of these further developments in the story besides the commission? Let's think about that for a moment. Would God have been faithful and just to simply give the commission of Moses to go? And the answer is, of course of course. But God who is kind and patient and a God who cares, He gives Moses a reminder that He will be with him. And not only will He be with him, but He gives him a sign, a, a sign that basically says, hey, take some of this dirt with you. You're going to be back here. You're not going to fail. We're not going to fail. And in this way, of, of God's Word is so authoritative and good that it's the equivalent of casting someone for a role and then letting them read the end of the story. Letting them watch the end of the movie of how it's all going to turn out. That's how kind and patient and loving our God is. Now, before we judge Moses, because we would think, surely this is enough information by which Moses now will trust God and go along, right? Now, we know the rest of the story. Is this enough for Moses? No. But before we judge Moses, let us remember that we have the written word to read of God's faithfulness and yet man's 
hesitancy to trust God and how the Word of God ministers to us. Secondly, we have the local church. And Moses, at this point, is alone in the wilderness, remember? He's not even with the Midianites. And so we have God's people to remind us of the faithfulness of our God, to trust His Word in every situation. But third, also, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us now, correct? Upon our regeneration and conversion in Christ, we, we've received His Holy Spirit as believers. And he works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so what happens in the book is we see that this is a very relatable book, the book of Exodus. A man with a multitude of evidence and a closeness to the Lord that struggles to trust the faithfulness of God, and so too do the people of Israel. But let's see what else the Lord tells us. You see, we see that He reassures Moses that He will be with him, that they will be successful. In verses 13 through 18, God tells Moses not to worry what He will say or to whom He will address. Now, we know later on in just a little bit, we'll look at it next week in a little more detail, but what is Moses' predominant anxiety? He doesn't want to speak. He doesn't want to be in the position to have to articulate what's going to happen. He's very self-aware of this shortcoming. And we've been there too, haven't we? If you have a shortcoming, you know what it is. If you don't know what it is, let me present some middle schoolers before you and they'll find it for you. <laughs> he knows what it is and he doesn't want to share it. But God preemptively, before Moses shares his anxieties, he tells him, don't worry, I'm going to tell you what you're going to say. And Jesus, we know later on, assures his disciples that he will give them the words to say as they stand before authorities and speak. He tells them exactly what he's going to say, and he tells them to whom he's going to address. You're going to address Pharaoh, but you're also going to address the elders of Israel. That's how kind our God is. He's, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses says, I'm not qualified. God says, here's my credentials. Here's my name. Now, when we had that ice storm, I don't know if you heard we had an ice storm. I know that's news for many of you. You're like, what? We did. And myself, like many of you, I needed a, a plumber. I had, my ceiling was leaking, which is not normal in my house. And so I called some friends, texted some friends, hey, do you know of a good plumber? And so I did what you did. I did what we all did. I started calling plumbers. And like, I was like number 65 on a list, which was going to be next week. And I was like, I don't, that's great. I appreciate you, but I don't think I'm supposed to have a water fountain through my ceiling tile here. And so I was talking to my neighbor, who's awesome. And he said, listen, here's a number to call. He gave me the number. But more importantly, he gave me a name to say. Tell them this person told you to call them. And so I did that. And I called with confidence. And he answered, and guess what? I went to the front of the list. Not because of my resume or my abilities, but because the credibility of the one who sent me with the number to dial. And that's what the Lord tells Moses. It's the Lord's name. What should I say? He says, tell them I am has sent you. 
Now, most of our, our study Bibles and commentaries are so helpful for us to bring this out that it's not the first time that, that Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord, has been used. And so most will make the note that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, and matter of fact, you probably might have a cross-reference in your Bible to this text, but you can write down Genesis 4, 26. That's where we see the personal name of the Lord used, Yahweh with man. I'll read it for you, Genesis 4, 25 through 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Of course, capital L-O-R-D in our English translations is Yahweh, the personal name of God. I think what we're safe to conclude at some point here, the people of God had forgotten the name of God. And God, who is kind, gives His name, His personal credentials. We saw Moses sober up when he realized from the burning bush, the angel of the Lord, the burning but not consumed bush, that it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that sent him. And now we see the I Am has sent him. And the Gospel of John, do you remember we went through the, the I Am sayings of the Gospel of John that Jesus uses? The Lord tells Moses what to say and to whom he is to speak. That the Lord is the I Am. He's the Creator, the Sustainer, the Unchanging One, the One who is self-sustaining perfect, non-developing. The I am has sent you. That's how good our God is. The Lord tells Moses what to say and to whom he is to speak. Moses is going to be God's ambassador. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being God's ambassador? Well, as Christians, we should be able to say to that, actually, yes. I can't imagine that because that's what Scripture calls us as believers in Christ. Uh, let me read for you 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. That's page 966 if you want to get there, but I'm probably going to read it before you have time to flip. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, listen to what the Lord calls us. Remember, Moses is presented as God's ambassador, his the one that's going to speak the Lord's words, to whom he is to speak. Listen to what Scripture tells us as believers in Christ, those hidden in the new covenant made by Christ's blood. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of what? Reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, to the saints, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are what? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Christ alone we're reconciled to God. That's demonstrated in our baptisms and depicted, isn't it not? And it's through Christ as believers we're reconciled to one another. As we discussed with the Lord's Supper, there's this intentional action that ought to be a reconciling act for the bride of Christ that gathers in local bodies. We've been reconciled to God. We're His ambassadors. It's His words that we're to speak. It's His actions that we're to abide in. 
how troubling that with this understanding of the name of the Lord and the task before Him and the words He's going to say that Moses still struggles to trust God in His Word. Can you relate to that? Of course we can. Of course we can. But look at the next reassurance that God gives. The faithful, compassionate God. We see verse 19 through chapter 4, verse 1, that, that God tells Moses of His power of the coming plot twists and Israel's rag-to-riches plunder. But Moses is still stuck on himself. We see God's power here. He says, unless compelled by a mighty hand. Unless compelled by a mighty hand. I do want you to flip to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's take a trip back to January. In January, as we finished up 1 Peter... In 1 Peter chapter 5, we see Peter uses, I think very intentionally, this hand of God language. And I just want to ask very simply, my goal here in going here is, is to say, what does the hand of God, what does the mighty hand of God do? The mighty hand of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what does His hand do upon His creation? For Pharaoh is not going to believe, but a mighty hand will be used. Humbles His creation. The mighty hand of the, Lord, of the Lord humbles His creation toward the will of the Lord. It's a mighty hand, not a weak hand. And this is in 1 Peter chapter 5, after this charge to the elders, we see the language used again. In verse 5, look at this application. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, God's way, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, He may lift you up, casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Why is God so patient to Moses? Because He cares for him. Why is God giving this commission to Moses? Because God cares for Israel and their groaning. Why does God give you and, and, and me a commission to go and make disciples and preach the gospel? Why? Because God cares. That's how good our God is. How many of us just need to stop for a moment and be reminded that God cares? That God cares enough to use His mighty hand to break the hardened heart of Pharaoh. That God cares so much that He would take us and rescue us from death and bring us to new life. That God cares about the smallest of anxieties that keep us up at night, that He longs for us to bring them to Him. May we always humble ourselves and trust that His Word and His way are always the better way. And God tells Moses of His human humbling power. But God also demonstrates his knowledge of the coming plot twists. If this is a roller coaster that Moses is getting on as an 80-year-old man, he tells him where all the loops are about to come. And here's the first big loop. By the way, Moses, you're going to speak my words. But, as we're told here, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. That's a huge loop. But the Lord says, get ready, here comes the turn. But don't worry. I will... Stretch out my mighty hand and I will strike Egypt and he will let you go. Second huge plot twist of this emotional and taxing roller coaster. 
He tells them of all the twists and turns, but he also tells them of Israel's rags to riches plunder. Did you see who exactly in Israel is going to be the one that asks for the plunder? Now, in the ancient world, as is often the case in the present world, how are things gained? By wit or by force? Or some combination of the two? But Israel is about to go as a servant people for now hundreds of years in Egypt. And how are they going to acquire such wealth? Are they going to use swords and do what Moses did and strike dead the Egyptian? What are they going to do? Look at your text. Who's going to ask for it? They're going to look at the wealth and they're going to look at the Egyptians and specifically somebody is mentioned here that's going to ask for it. The women of Israel will ask for whatever they desire. And Egypt will be so humbled that they will give whatever they have. That's how victorious God's people will be because that's how victorious and glorious the God is who gives the charge, who is with them, who promises them success. That's how mighty His hand is. That's the kindness of our God. Now, we'll go much more into depth this uh, next week as we finish through chapter 4, verse 18. But with all those things understood, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What's Moses' response to all these developments as he first says, who am I? The Lord shares his name with them. He shares his presence with them. He shares the promise of success. He shares them the full plot of how it's going to run. And he shares the guarantee of the plunder that his people who are now groaning will soon experience. It's so much that you would think Moses would sign up to play Charleston Heston. What a character development. What a character arc of development and redemption that Moses is going to experience. But it's almost like he didn't even hear the Lord speak, isn't it? Why? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Here's why. Moses responds to the Lord, but behold, they will not believe who? Me. Or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to me. If he was listening to the Lord, whose voice is it? It's the Lord's voice. It's the voice of Yahweh, the I Am. The God who promised him success. But he's so consumed with himself that he fails to hear and therein respond to the Word of God. Listening to this word and that reality, we have to ask ourselves the question, even as believers, have I grown so stuck on myself and my own priorities and my own comfort zones and my own goals and my own preferences that I don't take seriously consuming God's word or hearing God's word? Which draws us to a, a very real point of confession. The God who is compassionate and the God who cares. And to those who do not know Christ, you do not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You like your life the way it is, but I assure you, 
His way is the better way. Entrust your sin and your very life to Him. He is faithful and just. He's worth your life. This leads us into our next steps in this component. I want to ask first, how might Exodus 3 and 4, and I know we've only gone to verse 1 of chapter 4, but how might this be different if Moses took a glance at himself, gaining self-awareness, and then a long gaze at the Lord? How might that encounter his response in chapter 4, verse 1, been different? We know it would be certainly different. And we know that Moses plays a unique role in redemption history, the one who, by whom the, will deliver Israel and then will receive the law of God, that will be our schoolmaster and prepare the way for Christ to fulfill all the demands of the law. For we as believers take on the law of Christ, loving the Lord in His way. But how might this be different in our own lives? How might our finances and our priorities and relationships and goals be different if we took a longer view at the Lord and the goodness of His Word? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? And this is what corporate worship does on a weekly basis. What does God's command for His people to gather, to not neglect the assembling together? What does our gathering do? It forces us to take a short look at ourselves and a quick, long glance at the Lord of glory. And then we live and we live a life of response to the goodness of our God and the faithfulness of His Word and the faithfulness to His people. That's the goodness of our Lord. And so if there's somebody in your life that you know is not committed to a local church body, would you bring them, gather them? There's lots of great faithful local Bible teaching churches in our community. But I hope you feel comfortable to invite them to come with you to this one, that they would be reminded of the glorious Lord that we will spend eternity gazing upon and worshiping for eternity. And one day we will receive, as Jackson affirmed, we will receive a glorified, resurrected body. And we will be with Him forever. A second, God's will for you, we can say with certainty, is not paralysis by analysis, correct? And God's will for us is not stubbornness or that we would just stop and only ponder all things, but that we would faithfully do the works that He's prepared before us. So I want to ask you in that way, is there a next step that you know you've been putting off in some area, whether it's following Christ as a believer in baptism or it's making reconciliation with somebody for which you have an offense? Act in the Lord this week. Don't wait. Trust God and act. How much more do you need to hear? Moses felt like he needed to hear more, and we'll see the Lord's response next week. It's interesting. Hasn't God given us enough to respond? Perhaps that's you in considering salvation. How much more do you need? Third, does my security as a Christian come from my faith in my faith or in the one for whom my gift of saving faith rests? This is a reminder and a ministry point to those of us that are believers. Where does your confidence come? Does it come in yourself and the faith that you muster? Does it come in Christ crucified, your hope of glory? This is exactly what we see in this song of response that we sing now, this first one, yet, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let this be your prayer this morning. Sing it in such a way that you might encourage those around you. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen? Let's stand with me, church family, as we sing.